Hope you all are having a, a good uh, Christmas so far, time of season, time of the year. I know it's busy and things like that, and uh, I, I do love the Christmas season. Um, I mean, I, I got to be honest, there are parts of it I'm not a huge fan of, but uh, for the most part, I really enjoy the season. I think we can get a little crazy about it. You know, we I acknowledged back in June that Christmas decorations were coming out in the stores, and and uh, Jamie was at a store last night and let me know that they've already moved the Christmas stuff out and they're moving on to Valentine's Day already. And so, and maybe that's where some of y'all are right now is that you're, okay, let's just, um, let's move on to something else because I'm done with Christmas. Because um, we can put a lot into this time of year. It just seems it busy and we get bombarded with stuff and a lot of chaos and a lot of stuff going on. And, and uh, But I like this time of year. Every time we hit Thanksgiving, I always... Uh, go to my DVR and begin searching through the channels and and try to find like the Christmas specials and the cartoons and the movies that we all like to li- all like to watch as a family. And y'all have favorite Christmas movies or specials that you just every year you watch. You're willing to confess? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, some of you will confess. Hallmark movies don't count. Sorry. Um, I'm proud to say I've never watched a Hallmark movie, but. Uh, Along with specials, um, you know, you've got the lights, the decorations. We bring out certain books this time of year uh, to read and just to have around for decoration. It's a, it's a wonderful time of year. It's a busy time of year. And uh, maybe you're feeling that this morning. In the midst of all the running around, in the midst of the singing, in the midst of the movies and the parties and the rapping and the shopping and the being here and being there and making sure you got the right clothes to wear, well, all that stuff goes into it, we can really lose sight of the Christmas story. And uh, even in saying that, when I hear myself saying that, I hear the Christmas story images of Ralphie pop in my head. And so we can lose sight of what this time is about and what this story is about. And if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in, in two books uh, this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, which Jason guessed right on that one. We'll also be in Matthew chapter 1, um, and we'll be looking uh, from both accounts concerning the Christmas story. Because what I want us to do this morning is, you know, my brother and I got to talk this last week as I got together with my side of the family, and that's always fun. We got my dad, my brother, and myself, and pastors, and talking about Christmas and what we're preaching on, and and you know how many times we've all preached on Christmas, and and uh, my brother got to talk just how much we have yet to exhaust it. No matter how many years we all have in our belts together, we've yet to exhaust the Christmas story. Yet at the same time, every year we can seem to lose the essence and the meaning of the Christmas story. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'm going to bring some of my old uh, English major. Um, I was an English high or English middle school uh, major. Uh, I was wanting to teach middle school students uh, not only how to understand English, but to speak English. Um, and before uh, God got a hold of me and called me into the ministry, that's, that was where I was heading. And so I want to bring some of that into the element of the Christmas story this morning and what makes a good story a good story. I mean, there's a lot of stories we watch every single year that we enjoy, we laugh at. Uh, there's a lot of stories we watch every single year that are outside of Christmas that we return to. Um, this time of year, I'm always wanting, I have an itch to watch uh, all Middle Earth movies. 
Um, and there's a backstory to that, but I don't need to go into it right now. Um, but there's stories we just relate to. There's stories we just are drawn to and, and we like to watch over and over. Maybe you have that favorite story. And so what makes the Christmas story a favorite story, a story that we should spend time on every single year? And the essence of every story has four things. And it's really quite simple in, in how each author weaves this into a story. So if you want to be a writer, here are the four things you need in a story. You need a setting. You have to know when and where something's going to take place. And, and typically that setting has a purpose to the story. And so you have a setting. With the setting, you have to have characters. And the characters have to be important because they have to be individuals that people can relate to in some way or another. This is why some stories thrive and some stories flop, is because characters are unrelatable or they are relatable. And so within the Christmas story, there are parts of each character, but I don't like to call them characters, because I think a character, I think of fictional individuals. Um, there are people in this story, individuals, which we can relate to that we may have overlooked. And I want us to dig into that just a little bit this morning. There's also, in every story, there's got to be some sort of conflict. There has to be an issue which the people are wrestling with. There has to be something that they're dealing with and they're struggling with. This is what makes a story something relatable to us because we all have things that we wrestle with. We all have conflict in our life. And finally, what makes a story a great story is resolution. That the conflict going on is brought to some form of resolution. And if you watch any of your favorite stories, read your favorite stories, what, favorite movies, whatever, you will see these four elements are in every single one of them. This is what makes a story a great story. So how do these elements play into the Christmas story, something that we bring up every single year, read every single year at your, at your family gatherings, we talk about every single year at church, we think about every time we come around this time of season. What are the four elements to which make this such a great story, but also an eternal story? So you have your Bible. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 2. And here in a little bit, we'll switch back to Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll come back to Luke chapter 2. And uh, I'll let you know when we get there. But let's just read from Luke chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7. And the word of the Lord says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and the lineage of David. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray together real quick before we hop into this. Father, I, I come before you as a humble servant. Uh, an undeserving servant to even speak your word and your truth, to be a representative of your kingdom. Father, you know my flaws and my sins are, are laid before you. You know the things I struggle with. So, Father, I come before you asking forgiveness for myself. Forgive me of, of my iniquities. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my lack of faith. Lord, in this moment's time, I rely upon your grace and your mercy as bowed upon me through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would use me, not for the glory of Harvest Hill, not even for the glory of myself, but, Lord, for the glory of your kingdom and your will. I praise you, Lord, that you know every single individual in this room. You know them by name. You know what's going on in their life, what's going on in their family. 
know what's going on with their work, you know, things that they're excited about and the things that they're worried about. Father, I praise you because nothing is hidden from you. Father, I praise you, you know, every heart in this place. You know the hearts that belong to you and the hearts that are far from you. And Lord, I surrender myself to your spirit, that your spirit would speak out of me, that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. They would, they would speak in such a way to every individual in this place that your story of salvation, your eternal story of redemption would come to life. It would revive our hearts. It would awaken our souls and our spirits. And Father, for those who don't know you, that the hearing of your story will reveal their relationship with you and their need for salvation, forgiveness for their sins. So Father, take us through where you need us to be. Be our shepherd, be our guide. Let everything that's said and done in this place be holy and pleasing to you. Let us worship you through the reading and the studying of your word and spirit and truth, for we know that's what you're seeking from us in this moment. I thank you once again for allowing us to be into your throne room of grace. I thank you for what you're going to do here in the next couple minutes. So Father, let us love you with our mind in this moment. And praise all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's deal with this, okay? Um, because the Christmas story, if you think about it, it's kind of a, it's an odd story, right? I mean, think about the things that go into the story. No other story would we celebrate in our life if it happened in our life where we would celebrate an unplanned teenage pregnancy. We wouldn't worship that. No other place in our life would we celebrate or worship an individual, a man, having second thoughts concerning marriage. No other place in our life or in this world do we celebrate a baby being born into poverty in the midst of cattle in a wet cave. And yet that is the Christmas story. The Christmas story is about a man struggling with marriage, whether or not to continue on into the marriage ceremony, a, a girl who is most likely in her young teenage years, and a boy that was unexpected and born in un uncertain circumstances. But the Christmas story within the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that the Christmas story we're so familiar with isn't in all of them. Uh, Mark doesn't even deal with it. Mark kind of breezes over it in his very beginning of the opening verse of his uh, Gospel under his name. Luke has it. Matthew has it. John deals with it in more of an eternal nature. And if you read through the Gospels, you find that the Christmas story that we celebrate every single year takes less than 1% of the entire uh, summary of the Gospels. There are 3,777 verses in all four Gospels. The Christmas story, Matthew and Luke combine, 27 verses altogether. Less than 1%, yet every year we sit down, we celebrate this time as Christmas, we set aside a whole month. We don't do that for Easter, but for Christmas, we set aside a whole month, we plan parties, we put out decorations, and we come to the Christmas story. If you look back in history, you'll find that the early church actually didn't celebrate Christmas. Matter of fact, the early church believed that the celebration of birthdays was a pagan ritual. It was something that uh, believers, children of God, shouldn't celebrate. The early church celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But over the passing of time, and when Christmas season began to be adapted in the winter months, the time of Christmas began to become known as a time of revival. And so that's why we have the lights. That's why we have the trees. It's a celebration of life and a celebration of light. 
but it's kind of become adapted into something else. So this morning, let's look at the Christmas story. Let's look at the four parts that make a good story and see why this is relevant to us and why it should mean so much to everyone else. What is the setting? Where does the Christmas story take place? It's an open book question. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And what is the significance about Bethlehem? Why did they have to go to Bethlehem? We can read that in the, in the passage there. Why Bethlehem? Why did they have to go there? There was a census. They, they had to go register. Okay, uh, and, and who came from Bethlehem? David, and, but who within the, uh, the relationship came from Bethlehem? Joseph. Okay, so they had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's family was from, which tells us he's from the line of David. So this is the setting. This is where it's going to take place. Now, if you ask about when did the Christmas story take place, a lot of people would point to the calendar and say, okay, it's when B.C. stopped being B.C. and A.D. started being A.D. and so at zero. That's when the Christmas story took place. But in reality, most historians would believe that, the, that Jesus Christ was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., so what we have is we have this story that is 2,000 years old, but on top of that, when we go to the Gospel of John, which we'll look at here in a second, it, we are told that the story is not just 2,000 years old, but this story began before time even began. And so this is the context or the setting of our story, that we have this eternal story taking place in this town of Bethlehem in a place of Judea. You can go to Bethlehem today. It's a lot like what it is today. There's a lot of civil unrest. There's a lot of uncertainty within the community. There's a lot of diverse community going on. The Romans were in charge at this time when Jesus is born. And, and so they go to Bethlehem. And one of the individuals we read about in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, and we read more of in Matthew chapter 1, if you want to make your way there, is an individual by the name of Joseph, which is the reason they have to go to Bethlehem in the first place. We're, we're told that Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He's in charge, which lets us know the situation in which they're traveling in. The Roman roads are available, but they're also under a foreign uh, government in power. And so they're going to Bethlehem. Joseph takes Mary. And why does Joseph take Mary? So we say, Merry Christmas. Nah. Preacher joke. Uh, no. Why Mary? They're engaged. Yeah, the word there is betrothed. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is led by the Spirit to write the same thing beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The word betrothed is a lot different than our word engagement today. I understand we celebrate engagements, and those are exciting times uh, that we go through. Also very intimidating times for guys. Guys had asked for the, the daddy's approval. Uh, that was fun. Uh, yeah, I, well, I did. Um, I don't know what's wrong with the rest of y'all. But anyway, um, betrothal in, in the Jewish society, what that meant, it was as an engagement. Typically, those marriage relationships were set up by the, the parents, and so when they were put together, it was almost like a contract, which is what marriage is. It's a contract. And, and the betrothal or engagement period would actually be seen in the Jewish society or Jewish way of life as already being married without the marriage benefits. And yeah, anyway, so um, 
it would be the ceremony would what would make them officially married within the Jewish society. But Mary and Joseph, through the Jewish lens, were already viewed as husband and wife. They were already committed to one another. The marriage ceremony just had yet to take place. So when we read betrothed, it carries more weight than in our day to day. To break a, an engagement in a Jewish society, there's really only one way out of it. And this in Matthew chapter one is our first conflict which Joseph is wrestling with. Joseph is betrothed or engaged to Mary. There we go. I mean, Mary. Y'all really love the Christmas story. I tell you what, feel the joy coming up. Betrothed to Mary. But what's the conflict? What's the issue? She's pregnant. Okay, I understand we have kids in here today, so we won't go into details. But Joseph's betrothed, engaged to Mary, finds out that Mary is pregnant, and Joe knows he's not the daddy. This is the conflict. Because in Joseph's situation, in his society, for a woman to become pregnant and, and we are understanding today would mean that she would have had some sort of relationship which would put her in that situation. And in a Jewish society, there was only one thing left to do. And Joseph, what we read in Matthew, was a righteous man. Joseph knew the law of God. He understood the law of God. He understood the restrictions that God placed upon individuals and what should happen in marriage and outside of marriage. And so Joseph's course of action was this, according to Deuteronomy chapter 22. He was to take Mary, his soon-to-be wife, he was to take her in front of the community, which would happen at Nazareth, not in Bethlehem. He was to rally the community. They would put Mary in the middle of the town square. Everyone would pick up a rock, and they would stone Mary to death. And we don't read about that in the Christmas story, right? But that is what Joseph, when we read in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph found that she was with child and being unjust and unwilling to put her to shame. That shame is what that is implying. That his responsibility as a righteous Jewish man, knowing that his soon-to-be wife is pregnant and is not his baby, was to bring her to shame and humiliation. Not only her, but her entire family. Through stoning, which ultimately led to death. But the Bible tells us a little bit about Joseph, not only being a righteous man, but he was unwilling to go through with that. So he was willing to divorce her quietly. And this is actually the best thing he could do. And he, he had a right to do it, but the best thing he could do is break off the engagement and send Mary away quietly so that the community wouldn't find out about it most likely she would be kicked out of her own family. Most likely she wouldn't be invited back to any family gatherings. But that's what Joseph's going to do. So we learn something about Joseph. He's a compassionate man. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of probably some frustration, in the midst of feeling lied to, I mean, can you imagine Joseph hearing Mary's explanation of this event? You ever try to put yourself in his shoes, guys? You ever imagine if, if the, the woman you're with, your now wife, or the woman you're wanting to be with comes to you and says, hey, look, I'm pregnant. I know what that usually entails, but I promise you it was by God, and I was not unfaithful. 
Imagine Joseph's like, that's, I've heard some big ones. <laughs> that's a good one, Mary. But he didn't want to put her to shame. He has a compassionate heart, yet he wants to remain righteous. He wants to follow what God's word says to do. So what we find about Joseph, if you want to read on there in Matthews, he decides to go with it because an angel comes and delivers a message. Verse 20 says, Joseph, son of David. And son of David means uh, lineage or line of David. He's of that family tree. Not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, filled with the Lord, had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And we can read over that, and maybe you've already read that when you've gathered for your family gatherings and you read the Christmas story together. We can read over that and miss so much of what Joseph was actually doing. What Joseph was doing is he was first trusting God. He was trusting Mary's testimony of what God had spoken to her. But he was inviting Mary to remain in this marriage contract with himself, knowing full well that the child was not his, knowing full well in a matter of months everyone would have an idea that she was pregnant, which is probably why she goes off to visit Elizabeth when she does. And so everyone around Joseph and Mary is going to be coming to the assumption that these two sped up the marriage vows, that they committed adultery. And so Joseph, not willing to put Mary to shame, but willing to accept the Lord's commission and what the Lord said to him, is willing to accept Mary's shame upon himself. And according to the Old Testament, according to the law of God, which Joseph would have been fully aware of, he was now willing to suffer the consequences of the community to which they lived in to gather them both in the town square and stone them to death. This is what Joseph is deciding to do. See, in the Christmas story, one thing we learn straight off the bat with Joseph's decision is there is always sacrifice in accepting Jesus Christ. When Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, even though that's where Joseph and Mary are from, or it's where Joseph is from at least, they most likely would have family or friends there. Yet when they arrive, they aren't allowed to come into anybody's house. They have to find an inn. They stay in a manger, which is a cave, which lets us know within the Christmas story, shame has been brought upon this couple. The family, the friends, are not inviting them in because of the assumption of what they did before the marriage could be consummated. That's the Christmas story. That's part of the conflict going on. But what about Mary? Go with me back to Luke chapter 1. The angel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, beginning verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The sixth month is referring to Mary's cousin or however related to her, her pregnancy with John the Baptist. And so Gabriel came to a virgin, verse 7, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What do you think made Mary favored? I always wondered that. 
That's an interesting thing to say to a woman or probably a teenage girl, favored one. To understand that, that saying, I mean, we could go to the Greek, but that doesn't really help us. You really got to understand the culture. In the book, The God-Fearing Life, Kenda Dean and Ron Foster write this about the culture to understand why Mary is favored. So she's probably young. She's probably about 13 or 14. And so she is a girl uh, and a virgin. She's uncompromised as a whole, and she is unbroken as the day when she was born. She is uncompromised by the outside world. In short, she has integrity. And God wants someone with integrity to bring God into the world. Mary doesn't stand much of a chance for an identity apart from God. She's too young to have had time to achieve much on her, to which to base her own identity. She is too poor to purchase her place in society. And to this fact, she is a female, which in this culture means that even if she did have accomplishments or social stature to her credit, they likely would have gone unrecognized because of her gender. All of this makes Mary a most unlikely candidate for helping God save the world, which is precisely why God enlists her. Nothing about Mary suggests that she can be who she is apart from God's favor. And as the angel comes and tells Mary what is about to happen in God's plan and in her part in God's plan, this is how Mary responds in verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I'm a virgin. What we learn about Mary, the individual, she's a realist. Mary sees things the way they're supposed to be. She understands how things work. In other words, no matter Mary's age, she's not an idiot. She knows the laws of nature. She knows where babies come from. She's never heard of a virgin giving birth to a child. She's never seen this happen before. But at the same time, even though what Mary can understand, even though what Mary has seen She's also a woman of faith, because if you jump with me in verse 38, this is Mary's response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, to your word. And the angel departed from her. And again, that's a very familiar passage from Mary, but what Mary is doing is entering into conflict. She is signing on to what God has spoken to her. She is saying, I belong to God. I don't understand how this works. I've never seen this before. I've never heard of this before, but I am the Lord's servant. I belong to God. I am owned by God. So I'm willing to give up all of my dreams. I'm willing to give up my future marriage. I'm willing to give up my future relationship. I'm willing to give up my name within my own family and community because I belong to God. In other words, God, I'm all in. Whatever you want, here I am. Nothing is impossible and I am your servant. Let it be according to your word. Mary doesn't seem to wrestle with conflict, but the outer conflict would have been upon her. And yet she doesn't look to the outer world. She looks to what God has spoken over her, and she says, I'm all in. That is what God saw in the favoring of Mary, is her heart was ready. 
We also read that Mary is a family person. When Mary, verse 39, Mary rose and went with haste to the hill country, to the town of Judah, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, which is a relative. She went with haste, most likely because she's beginning to show that she's pregnant. She went with haste, most likely because she's bringing shame not upon her, only upon herself, but upon her family and upon her future husband. So she escapes that place. But she goes to be with family. As we gather around family this time of year and we celebrate, excuse me, celebrate Christmas, we exchange gifts, this is what Christmas is about. It is about God inviting us into his family. It is about God declaring that you and I are worth sending his only son. And the beauty about Mary is she is the very first person that we read in Scripture that accepts Jesus Christ for who he is. All terms, all conditions. And that's where we need to be this season. Do we accept Jesus Christ for who he is? That doesn't mean we have, to, we have to understand it all. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's always going to go the way we want. But we accept Jesus Christ for who he is fully, the Son of God, the one prophesied thousands of years before he was even born, the one sent to die for our sins and rise again that we might be completely forgiven, and the one the Bible says is going to be coming back. There's another individual or heavenly being, which is Gabriel, Within the story, Gabriel is an angel of the Lord, which means he's a messenger. He comes to deliver, in both accounts, it's believed, to come to deliver the message to Joseph and Mary. An angel is a messenger of God. What that means is he received the command or instruction from God, from the mouth of God in the, the throne room of heaven, and delivered to Mary and Joseph. But we see in the words of Mary and jo that he delivers to Mary and Joseph that the angel is a comforter, an encourager in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of struggling with the faith. Gabriel comes to pronounce the Lord's truth upon them. The final individual in the story is obviously Jesus, whom we celebrate at Christmas. And what we find in the proclamation of, of Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, in saying that you shall, in verse 31, conceive in your womb and bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus meaning the Lord who saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He's saying that he will be of equal nature of God and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's speaking of the prophecy spoken thousands of years before this very moment. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He's speaking to the covenant given in the book of Genesis and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's speaking of his eternal nature that is going to be completely seen when we see him face to face. This is the message that Gabriel's giving. He says, this isn't just happening on Christmas Day or what we call Christmas Day. This isn't just something you're going to experience in the next nine months and when he's born. This is something that God has been planning since the foundation of all things. This is God's all-in plan. That's Christmas. Christmas is the story of God saying, I am going all in for you that you can be restored back to me and redeemed through my son, Jesus Christ. The conflict is we can be a lot like Mary and Joseph. We don't understand it. We can worry about what that's going to mean in our life if we were actually to accept it. We can worry about what other people may think. And so what is the battle going on? Philip Yancey writes that within the conflict, there's actually two. Not just what we pick up from Joseph and Mary, but there's a, a physical conflict and a spiritual conflict. Physical conflict is this, nine months of awkward explanation. 
the lingering scent of, sand, of scandal. Seems that God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his interest, entrance, as if to avoid any charge of favoritism. He goes on to write that I'm impressed that when the Son of God became a human being, he played by the rules, which are very harsh rules, because small towns do not treat kindly young boys who grow up with questionable paternity. Malcolm Muggeridge observed that in our day with family planning clinics, which we would honestly call them abortion clinics, which offer convenient ways to correct mistakes that might disgrace the family name, it is in point, in fact, that it is extremely probable under our current existing, or under our existing conditions that Jesus would not have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Ghost would have pointed to the need of a psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating the pregnancy even more stronger. Thus, our generation needing a Savior more, perhaps, than any that has ever existed would be too humane to allow one to be born. Philip Yancey returns to speak of the spiritual conflict. We rise that I believe as a Christian we live in parallel worlds. One that lives, consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds that watch their, shep, their, sheep, their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces and somewhere out there places called heaven and hell. And one night in the cold and the dark among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together in a dramatic point of intersection. God who knows no before or after, enter time and space. God who knows no boundaries took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, the ominous restraints of mortality. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together, but the few eyewitnesses on Christmas night saw none of that. They saw an infant struggling to work, never before used lungs. Emmanuel, God with us. Two worlds colliding because there's a God who loves us. The conflict surrounding Christmas brings to an easy resolution. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, our conflict in this time of year and every time of year, matter of fact, every day of our life, is that we feel like if we can be a good enough person, if we can go to church enough, if, if, if we read enough, if we give enough money away, if we do enough nice things or enough good things, then that should get us into heaven. But God understands that there's nothing we can do on our part to earn heaven. God understands that our definition of good is corrupted by our sinful nature. And because God understands that we can't get back to Him on our own, that's why God stepped into our time and into our space and played by our rules. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus sat down with an older gentleman one night in the city of Jerusalem, and they were talking about eternal things. In the midst of that conversation, probably one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture came out. Where Jesus declared to a man named Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Paul understood the resolution that Christmas is about is for our sake. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 24, the Bible says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is that righteousness? That righteousness is Jesus Christ. That the, the bearing through the law and the prophets, that's what the, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel was speaking about, being born in Bethlehem, being born as the Son of God. The righteousness of God, Jesus it's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The conflict is the conflict we wrestle with in our sinful nature, and that's what Christmas is about, is God came to resolve our conflict. I'd like to turn to uh, the great theologian, Dr. Seuss, to kind of drive home the point. to the Who's, he was grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. He paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. He started in low, then it started to grow. This sound wasn't sad. Why? This sound sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Christmas. 
Christmas is a lot more. It's more than music we love, movies, television, shows, books, cards, lights, boxes, bags, ribbons, trees, food, sails, shiny paper, snow, parties. Christmas story is about a king who came to live among us. If we head home here in a few minutes, you probably have your Christmas trees up in your homes or you're going places that will have them. I want to put this reminder in your head about why the Christmas tree is used. The Christmas tree was originally used to represent the celebration of the renewal of life. And so as you look at a Christmas tree, as you gather around Christmas trees with your family, understand that is the Christmas story. That God came to bring life by living among us. The Christmas story is an exciting story. The reason we come back to it every year is because it is our salvation story. That's why we should focus on it every year. Focus on it every day. It's the beginning of salvation, the means of our total resolution before God. Jesus came, born as a child, born from a virgin, but born to die. I don't know where you are this morning, but I know this. If you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, then you're lost. You're lost. You're still in your sin. And that's what Christmas is about, is that God sent His Son to deliver you from your sin, to forgive you from all of your sins, past, present, and future. That's why Jesus was born. He was born for the cross. He was born for the tomb. And He went to that cross, and He went to that tomb for you and for me, but He came out so we could be completely forgiven. And this is the greatest gift you can receive this entire year, is that God so loved you that He gave His only Son. If you would just believe in God's love for you, you will be saved. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us through a time of invitation. Maybe you're like me, and sometimes this, this Christmas season kind of wear you down, and you get a little frustrated. And you just need that reminder that for thousands of years, God has been thinking about you. <laughs> thousands of years. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That this needs to be a Christmas time of year like no other year you've had. I'm going to invite you to come and you say, Hey, Pastor Mike, I want to know what it is to be saved. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want to know what it is to have the assurance of eternal life. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to come as the worship team leads us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this story. Thank you for these individuals who decided to trust you to trust your word and what you spoke over them. I thank you that we had to come this time of year and we had to celebrate for a month, for a couple weeks, for a couple days. But Lord, you know there's so much going on in our lives, so, so much getting here and there and doing this and doing that that we can forget what this time of year is all about. You are with us. You came to save us. Lord, thank you for saving a wretch like me. Pray for those here this morning who don't know you as your Lord and Savior. Pray that you would just use your words and your spirit. Open their eyes to see that truth. In this moment, you would give them the spirit of courage to come down and let it be known they want to be saved. But I pray for our forgiveness. Those times that we have just forgotten what this time of year is about. We've made it about other things. 
not remembering this is a declaration of your love over us. You deemed us worthy to be saved and be a part of your family. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Let us come this time in response and be doers of your word. Pray it on your son's name.